1: was a responsibility to set up the tabernacle, tear down the tabernacle. They were the ones given to who gets the right to do the worship, who can come in, how far they can go, when they're to worship, what time of the year, what they're supposed to bring for worship. Everything that dealt with serving God in the Old Testament was given to the Jews and how to do that. And so they call it the service of God was given to the Jews. This is how you are to serve the Lord and you're to do it this way. Even the Gentiles that came in, they could only go so far and no further. Number six, the promises. Now, generally, this would be all the promises of God. But more specifically, I believe, I really believe this strongly, that the difference between the covenants earlier on in the passage and here the promises, is that these promises, according to many other verses, I'm I'm speaking fast because I'm running out of time and you guys need to get this, but these promises more specifically deal with the promise of the coming Messiah that was given to the Jewish people. And we will define it this way, that Jesus the Messiah would be the prophet priest and king of kings and the Lord of lords. He would be the redeemer for Israel, spiritually speaking. All that, that promise was given to them and now to us by extension because it was given to the Jews. So really what we got was a promise to them that now we have today and how important that is. So I look to the Jews and I say again, you are a very chosen people group. Now, seven would be fathers. Who are the fathers? I believe it would be the fathers of the nation of Israel, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. Others will branch that out to Samuel and a few others. But I think if I was to ask you this question, since it's uh, Memorial Day weekend, I know it's not um, Independence Day, 4th of July, but if I was to ask you, who would be referred to as the father or the fathers of the United States? Who would they be? I bet if you wrote it down on a piece of paper, we might get three or four common names, maybe George Washington, maybe some of the signers of the Declaration, but who would you define as a father? Close enough, though, these would be the ones who in some measure framed our country. If I was to ask you, who is the father of the Reformation? You might put down some people. John Calvin, Martin Luther, Zwingli, you might have your own names there. And some names might be different, but these people all contributed at the early time when the statement of faith alone in Christ was now being prevalent, defended and died for, so we have it now today. That would be those fathers. So here the Jews would look at their fathers as those that were at the beginning of the Jewish nation in its development and what God spoke to them to bring truth to us today. So they have some very special fathers fathers with great history. Not perfect men, but men that had great influence. And the last, I think, is most important, as I refer to as the lineage of Christ. If you look at the verse, it's so rich. Follow along, if you will. This is important. Verse 5 says, Whose are the fathers? And then it says, And from whom the fathers, meaning line, is the Christ, or the Messiah, according to the flesh. Obviously, because Christ was all God, but all humanity. So the humanity part of the all God of Christ came through the flesh, through the fathers. And it says, who is over all, referring to Christ, we know that in the book of Colossians, God blessed forever, which now if you want to take your Bible, circle the word Christ, circle the word God, and you see one more time that Christ and God are seen together, the deity, so we don't separate, it's not big God, little God, it's not mighty God, almighty God, it's all God who is overall God-blessed forever, the eternality of God. And then it ends with amen. Whether that's a benediction or not, I really don't know. Now, let's come up for air for just a moment, if we can you got a lot of information there. I encourage you to get a good Bible commentary. When you do, begin to chase down the references of the covenants, chase down many more references that deal with these eight privileges that the Jews have. But as I look at this little list of eight that you have in front of you, it seems like it starts out with the adoption, and it's kind of picking up the volume and getting louder and louder and louder and louder, and it ends with a crescendo of Jesus Christ that they've come from, the Jewish people. Because really that's the focal point of their entire history is Christ's death and his resurrection. So that is so critical. And he mentions that. Now, why did I say that for this? Uh, why did I say verses 1, 2, and 3 until now? If you read Romans chapter 8, it too is beginning to build a crescendo because sanctification is all of the Lord, Him living His life out through us, and that wonderful experience of the resurrected life. And then at the end of it, the last three or four verses, it talks about, and nothing shall separate us from the love of God. We read all of that. It's like He's on a euphoric high. It's like He's in a rhapsodic mode. And then He goes right into verse 1 of chapter 9. So if I took out the chapters, and we just went from the last verse of chapter 8 and the first verse of chapter 9. Look at how quickly it changes. Look at it. Let me read to you the very last verse of verse 9 of chapter 8. It says, Now, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, verse 9, he says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from God for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Clearly he's saying, I wish that I could even go to hell and be damned forever. That word accursed in the Greek is only used in the context other places of being damned and hell bound for the sake of the Jews. And now I think this might be a little bit more licensed, and that is, whatever would take in my life, even being damned to hell, that my Jewish brethren would now know Christ like I know Christ. Now, it doesn't say that, but if you read through the book, that's his whole intention. If you go to chapter 10, it Clearly makes it because in verse 1 of that chapter it says, My heart's desire and prayer to God is that all Israel might be saved. So that's why I think 9 verse 1, 10 verse 1 go together. So he says, I wish I I, I would go to hell if it was necessary for them to be saved. Chapter 11 is reminding the Jewish people that they're not rejected. All right, that being said. Now, let me take you back for a moment a little bit about the Apostle Paul. If you study the life of the Apostle Paul, he began with loving God with all of his heart, having a tremendous amount of um, training that he had from his uh, rabbinical training, whatever. He had tremendous uh, Old Testament training. He then followed along while the Christians were being gathered up and persecuted and even killed, and he was there when Stephen was martyred. So he was all a part of that. A short time after that, he's going to a place called Damascus, and on the road, God sovereignly steps into Saul's life. He comes to faith in Christ. His name is changed to Paul, and after a few years, he's really on fire for the Lord after he had some time in the desert, maybe some time alone with the Lord, really getting taught. Other scriptures imply that. So now he's on fire for the Lord. So now catch what's happening. He gets on fire. You go into the book of Acts. Further on, you see he's telling people about Christ. People are now, first of all, they're hindering him, hampering him, you know, from doing what he believes God wants him to do. Then they do a little bit further. They're harassing him with all of that. In fact, it said a couple of ladies chased him all around, chased him out of the city. Then it goes even further. They hated him so much that they stoned him and they thought he was dead. So they took him outside the city, dumped him on a trash pile because they thought he was dead. All of that. Now, people say, oh, poor, poor. Why did they do that? Because in the midst of Paul's message, while he was talking to them, he was this staunch Jew that everybody knew. Now he's talking about Jesus Christ. The Jews are not just upset because he's talking about Christ. That, that's a major part of it. But also because they thought that what Paul was doing was denigrating his own heritage which would be the Jews, speaking against the Jews. You guys have it all wrong. You need to trust Christ as your Savior is basically the message. So they took that personally. They said, so all of a sudden, they begin to concoct all these stories, read it in Acts. They actually made up stories about Paul. So they ended up in prison. Eventually, he died, all against him because they misunderstood his message. Yes, the Jews were wrong, but yes, God still loved them and that by faith alone in Christ, their Messiah, they could have eternal life. And there were tons of Jews People coming to know Christ as Savior. Did you follow all of that? Say, uh huh. Now, let me tell you how it makes it practical today. I'm on the radio. You already know that. That's not pride. It's just that's what happens. If I go real public and I start really speaking about the fact that the Bible clearly says that same sex marriage is wrong, that it's not biblical, sociologically, we know that it's also not healthy. And, um, Nationally speaking, it's not good for nations in the long run as you go back history and you see all of that. So biblically and a whole lot of other reasons, it just doesn't hold water and it's not good. All right, what the world then will hear is that pastor over at International Church, they hate gays. He hates gays. I never said that. I love them. Would to God they'd all come here and hear the message of salvation. Would to God that they'd come to faith. Would to God that they would be sanctified. Would to God that they would see the sovereignty of God and they'd have service in their heart after they've trusted Christ. I don't really hate them. And let me tell you, when you start going public about anything according to the clear teachings of Scripture, you're going to have people come against you because they're going to now take your message, they'll put their spin on it, and with that spin, they're going to marginalize you at the least and probably condemn you at the most. And maybe some of us might even go to a point of going to jail or die for that very fact, just like the Apostle Paul did. Now, why am I telling you that? Because that's really what was going on. If you follow Paul, he's trying to defend his apostleship, not saying, hey, I'm Mr. Apostle, you got to follow me. What he's really trying to say, what I'm telling you, Jewish people, is because God gave me this message, I've done special things, i met the Lord, I know what I'm talking about, and I really love you. I'm just trying to say your your, your logic is wrong, your theology is wrong, your belief system is wrong, but you still have access to this God. And you should more. You should more. Because there's eight privileges that you have that the Gentiles don't even have. If anybody should run to Christ, it should be you people. Now that's going to tell you why Satan is such a dirty bird out there and he's messing that whole thing up. So keep that in mind. Now let me go back to this passage and see the pathos in all of this. So what he's really trying to do is speak to those people that might be in the audience, and perhaps through inspiration, this is now giving us some lessons of what happens when people come against us. So he says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. Wow, how important that is. Then he says, and I'm not lying. He used that phrase three or four times in Scripture, either when he was defending who he was in Christ or when he was given a significant truth. Then he says, my conscience testifies with me in the Spirit. And what's important is the phrase, with me in the Spirit, because our conscience is not our guide. Our conscience is not a reliable source for decisions that we make. A conscience is only as good as it's influenced by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. But he is saying, my conscience testifies, but I do have backup. And the backup is the Holy Spirit. A little more backup is, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. So I have two witnesses, Christ and the Holy Spirit. So now you can circle Christ and Holy Spirit. And what again do you have? You have again the deity of Christ and the deity of the Spirit. But I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. So he's just, he's, he's just pouring out this pain that he has. And now he goes a little bit further. For I could wish that myself were a curse separated from Christ. I think that's reminiscent of their own Jewish leader called Moses, who basically said the same thing. They're in so much sin, just put it on me. Wish I could myself be accursed, separated from Christ for all eternity. And by the way, notice accursed, not cursed and go to hell and suffer the flames. The worst part of being separated or in hell is going to be being separated from Christ. Then he says, I want this for the sake of my brethren. So it's not that I don't love them. I will do whatever I can to reach them. So look up here for just a moment. Those people that feel especially called to go majorly public to reach people in our society that um, believe so diametrically opposed to the word of God, whether it's um, um, uh, the sanctity of marriage or the sanctity of life, those two biggies right now, if you're going public and you're trying to reach those people, you can only imagine the, the pushback that they're going to get. And then for those people that are pushing back against those who are representing the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of life, these are people coming to them and saying, wait a second, I love you. I'm, I'm willing to do whatever I can to reach you. I'm I, I'm willing to be even a curse from Christ for all eternity for you. I suffer anguish for you. Now, this is Ponsism, so be careful. Maybe the reason these people keep banging away the the ones that don't believe the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of life it it could be is that we send send such a muddied message that we in our language in our communication is kind of like we want them to go to hell or we think they're going to go to hell or we just don't communicate the passion that Paul has the logos of the truth to them and so maybe we need to kind of go back and say do we really love them do we really love these people? Does it really show? Does it show in our attitude, our eyes, our conversation, our separated life, whatever that might look like, so that we back up what we say to these people? And that's what Paul is saying here. It goes a little bit further here. And he says, For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh who are Israelites. He says, I'm one of you. I'm no different than you. But I have Christ. Well, some of you are so driven by your little outline, so let me just give you this, and we'll end. I'll get out of here. If you want to have a burden like Christ, or at least manifest it to influence others, let the reality of God and eternal issues affect us. I can give you a lot of little statistics of how many people are dying and how they need to know Christ, and I get all of that, but if you could step away and realize that there is a God, this plan of the ages is all about people being vitally and eternally connected to God through Christ and that we need to live in the eternal realm, in the heavenly realm, the spiritual realm, and not merely just stay so encumbered by the affairs of this life. And so we have to think about a God who is large and in charge and there is something going on, which means where you live, where you work, where you fellowship, where you shop, God has allowed you, permitted or prescribed you to be there for the purpose of somehow doing something for eternity for those people, for Christ. I I don't know. Some you'll go further with, some you won't go far enough with. It doesn't really matter. But somewhere we have to realize we are planted here and we only have a short amount of time and we are missionary, not when we go to the field or we go to Bible college and graduate or get commissioned. We're a missionary the moment we trust Christ. And then the second part of that is we have eternal issues that affect us. I was reading one guy's sermon. It wasn't even connected to this message. He says, it ought to be for Christians. Everybody goes everywhere All the time for God. I like that. And I hope that we would. So that's the reality of it all. And then maybe the second thing we might do to work on is to make an honest admission. Dig deep within you. Has that spark of passion for reaching others for Christ because they don't know truth? Or maybe that that spark of passion for your love for the Lord so much that you want to be a part of God's purpose in the world today? What in the world are you doing for heaven's sake, so to speak? You know, and, and we've lost that. And then finally, are we willing to make the same sacrifice to communicate the message of salvation to others? And by the way, Paul, that was a hyperbole. He, 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 he really could never be a curse. Once you trust Christ, he can't make himself go to hell for other people. That's nowhere possible. It's kind of like he's saying all this. Have you ever said when you were a kid, cross my heart, hopes to die? Do you really hope to die to keep that promise? (laughs) I know I don't. Crossmire hoped to die, but that's what he's basically saying. Crossmire hoped to die. I want you to know Christ as Savior. John Knox, who lived in the uh, late 1700s, excuse me, in the 1500s, great reformer, said this Give me Scotland and I die. Henry Martin, who came from England, he went to, of all places, Iran and India. Great missionary, late 1700s. He said, oh, that I were a flame of fire in the hand of God. Basically, he gave his life as a missionary. One of my favorite is one of our own American missionaries who was a missionary to the Native American Indians in the late 1700s and early 1800s. He only lived to be 26 years of age. His name was David Brainerd. I've been to his grave, I've been to Moody's grave, been to Whitfield's grave, I've been to Jonathan Edwards' grave. In each one of these, I I just I just prayed. And I didn't pray for them, you know, I just Lord, just somehow. And David Brainerd, he died of a sickness that it was so much uh, that he had that if there was a, a girlfriend that he had, she even got it and died a, a year or two later from the very same thing. And Jonathan Edwards, who, in whose home... Brainerd died, he then took the autobiography, the journal that Brainerd wrote over the few years that he was out in the wilderness of Massachusetts and Delaware trying to reach the Native Americans. And you could imagine how dangerous and how primitive it was then. And he said, people need to have this. So he set aside the book he was writing, Edwards, and he took this and he put it all together and he printed this out back in the, again, early 1800s. That book, which would be the journal of David Brainerd, with the introduction by Jonathan Edwards, is reprinted every single year. It is still in print today, and you can get a copy. It is from that book that William Carey, who's known as the father of missions, got his inspiration. It's that book that sent many people in the mission field. And here's what David Brainerd said. He said in his journal, I cared not how or where I lived or what hardships I went through, so that I could but gain souls for Christ. Well, my dear friends, I I, I don't know where we are, but I sure don't want to be a part of a ministry, and you don't either, that wants to sit, soak, and sour and forget about our calling to reach those that are around us with whatever God's given to us. Don't try to be someone you're not. Don't try to do it in a way that you're not comfortable with, but reach out with your life in your lips to communicate that precious message of salvation. Let's pray, shall we? Well, we've just begun in Romans, and next week we're going to cover some truths to show you some of the basic understanding of God toward the Jews. It's the same for us, but you're going to find it very helpful. And I would like to encourage you to invite your unsaved people here next week because there'll be four foundational principles about God that... Face the Jewish people for them to come to faith in Christ and God's relationship to them that he offers to us to be a part of his forever family. You don't want to miss it next week. It's a great teaching and it will especially be clear for those that don't know Christ. But maybe you're here today listening to my voice and you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior. And so I, in a sense, would almost say I wish I could be a curse from God so that you could come to know Christ. But I can't. But I know someone who did die and for a moment was separated from God and that was Jesus Christ on the cross When, at that very moment when all the sin of all man was placed upon him and he died that it got instantly black instantly dark when he made the complete payment for every sin you've ever committed and every will commit. And he did that and God then smiled in a sense because Jesus resurrected from the dead and God the Father was satisfied with God the Son's payment for sin and All of that's wrapped up in the deity, and I can't explain all of that, but it was all done, finished, complete, never have to be done again. And it's wrapped up in a bow, handed to you, and all you have to do is receive it. And by any good works we do is like saying that our works are greater than the work of Christ. That doesn't work. Jesus says that it's by believing in Him. Scripture says it's not by works of righteousness. So all we do with that gift is to receive it. And Jesus is offering it to you this morning. I don't know what the future holds. Those people who are dying in car wrecks today, they didn't know they were going to die. They'd never in that car. But it's possible that our end of life could be this afternoon. So right now while you're living, you've got to do your believing. So would you place your faith right now in Jesus Christ? You can't make a mistake. If you're coming to Him totally and trusting Him with nothing else attached to it, believing that Jesus is God and Jesus died and He rose again for you. And just simply say, Lord, thank you for doing that. I'm depending upon what you've done on the cross. I'm taking you at your word. I'm trusting you. You said if I believe in you, I trust in you as my Savior and that I don't do anything else to mess it up by bringing my own good works to it, then you'll give me eternal life. And Jesus said that. So you can't make a mistake. He knows your heart. Now, I'm not going to have you come forward. I'm not going to have you do anything that will embarrass you. But I would offer the opportunity that you might want to take that little card that was in our worship folder that you came in and received and just let me know if you trusted Christ or shake my hand afterwards. If you've got questions about any of this, just look me up. I'll be glad to talk with you privately, however. If you're a lady and you want to speak to a lady, my wife and maybe others would be glad to speak with you. But oh, my friend, please trust Christ. All the privileges given to the Jews and they basically walked away from it for the most part. A few trickled in. Would you trust Christ as your Savior? Look at the thought questions. Are there privileged people in your family that need to know Christ? Who do you need to go to? Who's left without you knowing if they've heard a clear presentation of the gospel? When will you do it? How will you do it? Father, what a, a great testimony of the Apostle Paul. We learn today that in, in what he said, his passion for the Jewish people, his prayer for the Jewish people, his reminders to the Jewish people that they're loved and not fully rejected lets us know he loves them. And yet, Father, when we follow his biography and acts, we find that he kept running from place to place because they were after him, beating him. Chasing him, threatening him, making vows to kill him. Yet, Father, he's just a man like we are. He, he had an old nature like we have. And yet, not one word of retribution to his own countrymen, to his own heritage. Not one note of anger or bitterness. But nothing but words of truth. Again, a tenderness of compassion and tone. Help us, Father, to know that what he had was you in his life, activated. So now, Father, live that out through us. Help us, Father, to go anywhere and everywhere to tell the truth to everyone and anyone. Now, Father, I pray that there's any here who trusted you, that they would do that today and not waste another moment. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.